Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, uh, number 139, a psalm of David. I invite you to listen carefully and listen well, for this too is the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O Lord! How vast! is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any way grievous within me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Uh, Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, This is actually the the concluding sermon in a a series that has been ongoing all summer, really. And the, the goal of this series is that we would Uh, enlarge our capacity to see God, to see the glory of Christ in the world around us. 
the, the foundational text for this comes from uh, Luke and his account of the transfiguration, which finds uh, its place in the very center of Luke's gospel. It is the turning point. It is kind of the hinge upon which the whole gospel account turns. And in this story of the transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain. He is transfigured before them. His face beams with light. His clothes begin to radiate in glory. Um, And from there, they descend the mountain and make their way to Jerusalem where Jesus uh, sets his face, the same face that is shining so radiantly. He says, uh, Luke says that he sets his face now toward the cross. And so the hope is that, like Peter, James, and John, we would learn to see more fully God's presence in the world around us, within us, in one another, in our church, in the world. And I hope that maybe just a little bit uh, of a glimpse of that glory has been made apparent to you this summer. And just because we're ending the sermon series, I don't want us to stop trying to see, right? But uh, this morning's passage... um, does something important for us. It's going gonna, it's gonna to sort of turn us around um, because we've had some particular objectives as we've sought to learn to, to see, some particular tools that we've been using, some particular approaches that we hope have been enlarging that capacity. So the first of them was holiness. We talked about holiness, holy people, holy places, holy things. Holiness, as we encounter it in the world, has the ability to to stop us for a moment, to cause us to look differently at the world around us, to recognize God's presence pressing in upon us. And a holy place, well, I hope that we're sitting in one of those right now. Right? We, We talked about the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and we might also say the sanctuary as we sit in it this morning has the capacity, should we have eyes to see and ears to hear, to grow us in our ability to see God. Holy places, holy people, holy things. We talked about ritual. That was the second big category. Uh, Ritual. We learned to make the sign of the cross. Does anybody remember how to do that? Has anyone maybe even been practicing that on occasion? Uh, we, We hope that we might do that together in the morning and in the evening. Practicing this in a ritual way. We discovered that rituals are actually something that we do every single day. Nearly every hour that we're alive, we engage in ritual action as human beings. And so the point is not will we engage in ritual at all. We do that already. The point is what are the best rituals that we can take on? What are the best ways that we can frame our lives and frame our days? And so making the sign of the cross was one of those rituals. Morning and evening, uh, we also talked about the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Holiness, ritual, and beauty. Beauty was that last category. We spoke of beautiful images, and I brought some icons in and and showed them to you. Beautiful images, beautiful words. We looked at the words of the Psalms. We looked at the words, yes, Chip reminded us of the hymns that we sing um, or that the choir leads us in. Let all the people praise him. Did that change your perception for just a moment? Did you imagine all people actually praising the Lord? Beautiful words have the ability to do that for us. Um, 
And of course, uh, beautiful words, uh, beautiful images, and beautiful actions. Chip led us last week in thinking about uh, the woman who came and poured the perfume on Christ's feet and wiped it with her hair. In another place, in another gospel, when this woman did that, Jesus responded that she has done something beautiful for me. Beautiful actions, as you carry them out or as they are enacted upon you, can open you up, as beauty does, to the presence of God. So hopefully you have some tools now in your tool belt. Hopefully you have some ability to engage in your day, trying to have eyes to see. You know, um, 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage that tells us love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, and so on and so forth, also contains within it this promise. Paul says, For now we see as in a mirror dimly, can't see God as clearly as we might like. But then comes the promise. Then we shall see face to face. And then this. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Yes, we're We're seeking more because there is more promise to us. We're pursuing more because there is more to come. Holiness, ritual, and beauty begins to open us to that reality of the kingdom pressing in upon us in the light of Christ's glory shining in the world. But there's a danger, perhaps. There's a temptation within what we've been doing that I want to try to erase today if I can. Uh, with this final sermon, with this, uh, this journey with Psalm 139 that we'll engage in, uh, I want us to not think, because we have some new tools on our tool belt, because we have some new abilities to pursue this life with God, I don't want you to think that ultimately you're in control of this. <laughs> right? That if we just work the tools well enough, if we pay attention to holiness well enough, if we admire the beautiful in a beautiful way, um, if we engage in ritual and never miss one, that we can force God to make us see, to let us see, to allow us to to, to encounter His glory and His wonder. I don't want you to think that uh, because we're not the primary actor here. Psalm 139 opens us to that truth. Uh, It is a prayer of David. Uh, We've talked before about how to engage with Scripture or how to pray. Um, in Latin, kind of four kind of classic categories. Lectio is the first of them. Re- read. Read Scripture. Lectio. Meditatio. Then meditate upon what you have read. And then oratio. Speak that back to God in prayer. Here's what I'm thinking, Lord. And then communitatio is this, this communion into which we're drawn uh, as we engage in this process. I think you can see each of those in Psalm 139. As David wrestles with the Word of God, the truth of God, meditates upon it, speaks it back to the Lord, and then in the end, he is led to a place of surrender. Surrender. This is how we shall truly see God when we surrender to Him. So let's, let's walk through that process. It's something of an existential journey, actually, this, uh, this passage through Psalm 139. Um, so I want you to listen just to the, just to the first paragraph again. Listen to it. 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I just want to highlight two, two aspects of this passage. Um, first, that God searches us out. And second, that He lays His hand upon us. Uh, you might say what we've been trying to do this summer is to seek after God. To see if we can encounter Him more fully. To see if we can be more aware of His presence. Um, Chip framed it like this. Where have you seen God this week? And I hope last week after that question, you went out trying to answer it. You said, well, wh where will I see God this week? There's some anticipation. Um, you're beginning to, to attend with greater clarity to the fact that God's actually involved in my life and at my house and when I lie down and when I stand up. We have been seeking after God, but this passage reminds us from the outset that the true seeker here is not us, is not you, but is God. God has sought after you. And in fact, if you look at, at just at the, you know, mom's here this morning, English teacher. So, so the grammar clues us in on this, that this is a completed and past action. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. It's already happening, happened for us. We might be out seeking God, but God has already sought you out and found you and known you completely. The script is flipped. It's not just us trying to see the light of Christ. It's Christ who pursues us and finds us. You know, Jesus actually tells a bunch of stories about this. Three famous ones, in fact. Back to back to back. Three parables. He says, which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and 99 were in the fold, and one was lost, would not go out in pursuit of the one that had wandered away. And finding it, would not take it and lay it upon your shoulders and carry it back home. Rejoicing. He says, there is this rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes back into the fold. And of course, Christ says, I'm the good shepherd. He's the one who comes to find us, to find you and has found you and places you upon His shoulders even as His arms are stretched out on the cross that you might be brought back home to God. He says, um, what of the woman who having ten coins and who loses one in the house somewhere? You ever lost something in the house? <laughs> well, you know what this feels like. Who loses one does not clean the whole house and turn everything over until she finds the one coin and finding it rejoices that she's found it. She says, there is rejoicing like this before the angels of heaven when one sinner is found, one who is lost returns home. Uh, I shared this morning at the early service that my cousin Bailey lives in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, he spends a lot of his free time walking the beach looking for shark's teeth. Uh, now, that's fun for me when I go to the beach, but we usually don't go down there. Um, 
in Charleston, off the coast of Charleston, there was a megalodon nursery. You know this gigantic, like prehistoric shark that makes, you know, a great white shark look like a little minnow or something? You know, he just ate everything. So there was, a, there was a megalodon nursery just off the coast of Charleston. There was one there that scientists know about and one off the coast of Peru. And so when Bailey's finding shark's teeth, he's not finding shark's teeth like this. He's finding shark's teeth like this. And he still yet gets so fired up when he finds one of these things. A couple, a couple days ago, he sent me a text and had a picture of a, a tooth on it that was enormous and pristine condition. And he said, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> he, is, he was so excited. He was rejoicing that he had found this tooth uh, that was actually, he said, Megalodon's grandpa. So it goes back even further. Um, but I think of Bailey when I think of someone searching and finding and then rejoicing and sharing it with others. Uh, I think of Lily who actually found her first little shark's tooth this summer at the beach and was just as excited as Bailey gets. Of course, that third parable that Jesus tells is the parable of uh, the prodigal son who was also searching for something. And he looked all up and down this world and couldn't find it. He took his father's money and inheritance. He spent it in lavish living, spent it in every way he could, wasted it all, didn't find the thing that he was looking for. He had a hungry heart. And yet even he discovered the pig slop wouldn't fill up that hunger. He began to hunger for the father's house. And he turns again and goes home and the father runs down the road to meet him and wraps him in his arms and puts his ring upon his finger and a new cloak on his back and slaughters the fatted calf and throws a great banquet feast for him and welcomes him home. That which was lost is now found. And there is great rejoicing when that happens. Guess what? The Lord Jesus has searched you and known you. It is a past and completed action. And heaven has rejoiced in you being found and brought to the Father's house. He's given you the Spirit so you can cry out, Abba, Father. David says, you've searched me and known me. Uh, he also says, Lord, that you have hemmed me in before and behind. And you, you get the sense that David's starting to feel just a little bit uncomfortable. God has searched him. He's known him. He knows when he sits down and when he stands up. He knows every word before he speaks it. He discerns every thought even before they come. He's starting to get a bit uncomfortable by God's knowledge of him, by his being searched, not only in this external fashion, but internally as well. You know, there are those who have sensed this presence of God all around them and have felt hemmed in and uncomfortable but there are also those who will pray for it uh, saint patrick's breastplate a, a famous prayer fourth century um, you know saint patrick of ireland has this prayer christ before me christ behind me christ to my left and to my right christ above me christ below me christ in the heart of everyone to whom i speak and in the mouth of everyone who speaks unto me he wants christ to be near to him him in it is a comfort and a blessing and a strength to him. But David's not there quite yet. Maybe you aren't either. I don't know. God knows every thought. When I lay down and when I rise. 
Well, I'm going I'm to make you even a little more uncomfortable, uh, or David is. He says that the Lord also lays his hand upon you. Now, um, when I was looking into this line, I was like, I've heard that before. Uh, a guy named Rick Crandall says that, that 39 times this, this phrase appears in the Scriptures, that God lays his hand upon you. But it's not always clear the result of that. It takes different forms. Let's, let's think. So when Joshua takes the people across the Jordan River and enters into the Promised Land for the first time, they celebrate and they build an altar there. And the purpose of that altar is so that when their children come back to this place and see it, they will say, well, what is this standing here for? And they can say, this is here because the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, through the wilderness, and He provided for us, and He's now led us into this land of promise, this land of milk and honey, this place of goodness and abundance. The line says that when they ask about this, they will say all those things so that they may see that the hand of the Lord was upon us as they enter into the land. David says the hand of the Lord is upon you. We read this and we say, that sounds pretty good. Or, last year I got to go up on top of Mount Carmel where Elijah and the prophets of Baal engage in this contest. 400 prophets of Baal were there. Uh, Baal, who's the storm god. There had been a, a drought, right? Baal, who's the storm god, uh, who, who allows the rains to fall and the crops then to grow. So there's an aspect of fertility here involved but there's there's a famine in the land there's there's a, uh, there's a drought in the works so the prophets of Baal come and 400 of them they build this big altar and then Elijah's over here on the other side and he builds an altar and it's just him he says you go first pray pray to Baal and see if he will send fire down to set this altar aflame and so they pray and they pray and they pray some more and they keep praying but nothing's happening they pray some more, and then Elijah pipes up, and he says, you know, maybe Baal's on vacation, guys. <laughs> I mean, it's like a heckler in the crowd at the baseball game. Yeah, He's like, are you sure Baal hadn't just gone to the bathroom? I mean, there's, the prophets aren't above potty humor, you know? Um, it's a little embarrassing, but there it is. What is Baal doing? Well, Elijah wants to show that their supposed storm God actually isn't in charge of the thunder, of the lightning, or the rain at all. So he prays to the God of Israel after dousing his altar with water and digging a moat around it and filling it up with water, and he prays, and lightning comes down from heaven, sets it on fire. Clearly, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one who controls the rain. They look off into the distance and they see rain clouds beginning to form that make their way and then fall upon the earth. After this whole contest was over, Elijah needed to move rather quickly. And the text says that the Lord placed his hand upon Elijah, and he outran Ahab and all his servants, and he made his way to safety. The hand of the Lord was upon his servant. The hand of the Lord was upon his prophet for deliverance, uh, and in victory. We hear the hand of the Lord. That's not that bad. That sounds okay, doesn't it? 
hand of the Lord is also dangerous to his enemies. 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines go into the tabernacle and they steal the Ark of the Covenant. You remember this important item? In the Holy of Holies, they take the Ark of the Covenant, the place where typically in the ancient world an idol would be carved and, and, and be resting, uh, designating the presence of the God in that place. But for the Israelites, of course, there was never an idol. That was forbidden. It was just the altar. The presence of the Lord was invisible there in that place. They take, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, they take it to Ashdod, and they take it and place it in the temple of a god that they worshipped, um, Dagon. And then they close the doors and they go to sleep for the night. And they get up the next morning, they go back in the, in the, in the temple there, and they look and, well, the idol of Dagon has fallen there in front of the Ark of the Covenant on its face. They say, well, that's strange. And they pick it back up and they, they place it where it needs to go. And they go to bed and then they get up the next morning and they go into the temple. And well, there he is again. But this time the idol has fallen down on its face and its head has broken off and both his arms have cracked. And it's just a stump. And the Philistines begin to realize they've <laughs> taken on more than they really wanted. And the text says that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them in Ashdod until they got to the point they say, we don't want this ark here. We don't want God's presence with us. And they got, they got rid of it. They moved on. The hand of the Lord can be heavy against God's enemies. Yes, but even upon his own servants. David himself who wrote this psalm in Psalm 38 says, O Lord, rebuke me not. Thy hand presses me sore. There can be discipline from the hand of the Lord. He also says in Psalm 32, Your hand was heavy upon me until I confessed my sin and you forgave me. So the hand of God when it's heavy is for a purpose. It's for reconciliation. It's for forgiveness and purification of heart. Um, or it's for empowerment. When Ezra was in Babylon, the people had been exiled into Babylon. Ezra went to the king of Babylon and Artaxerxes granted every request that Ezra made. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him, the Bible tells us. The Lord has searched us and known us. The Lord has placed his hand upon us. We start to feel a little uncomfortable when we realize that nothing about us is hid from God and that his hand can sometimes be blessing, empowerment, um, victory, but sometimes it can be heavy in rebuke or discipline. There's a tension to be found here between God's mercy and his gentleness, uh, between his mercy and his justice, between his gentleness and his rigor. And you might say, how can I reconcile all of that? That's two seemingly competing things. <clears throat> well, you guys have been looking at some beautiful images lately. Do you remember the icon I brought in of Jesus Pontecrotter, Jesus All-Powerful? In that image, the left side of Christ's face is lined. It looks stern. And the right half of His face is not like two different faces, but it conveys something of a softer look, uh, of a gentleness. In fact, in His left hand, the stern side, you see a book. The Gospels, but also the book of judgment, the book of life. 
And then in his right hand, he's holding up the sign of blessing, the sign of gentleness, forgiveness, the Trinity, and the dual natures of Jesus. You see how these seemingly competing things come together in Christ and are reconciled in him in his person, just as God and humanity comes together in Jesus. But David says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Um, and so, like human beings always do, like you do, like I do, like Adam and Eve did, he tried to get away. Like Adam and Eve, he tried to hide. Like Jonah, he tried to get away from what God had for him. He says in the, in the psalm, where shall I go from your spirit? And he tries out all these places in his imagination. These seemingly polar opposites. He says, if I ascend to heaven, well, you're there, God. And of course, we sort of expect God to be in heaven. But then he says, if I descend to Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there. He says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He said, even if all becomes dark for me, have you ever been in a point in your life where you felt like that? Even if dark surrounds me, well, even there you are present because the darkness is as light to you. He's beginning to realize that he cannot run from God's presence. We're trying to see it, but you also can't run from it. How does, how does this begin to be reconciled in David? This discomfort at God's nearness, but also this desire to know him and to be known. It comes in this passage which speaks to God's knowledge of him and his creation of him. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There have been a lot of babies born in the church in the last little bit. Bruce is here this morning. He's four months old. Um, there are a few more on the way. This passage, In this passage, David begins to reflect upon the fact that God knit these children together, knit David together in their mother's womb. I'm pretty sure 100% of you were in your mother's womb at one point. <laughs> Which means also that God knit you together intricately. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The God who sees you and whose hand is upon you is also the God who created you, who wanted you. Out of all the people that He could have made, He made you in love and with purpose. In fact, even before all of that, David marvels, he meditates upon the fact and marvels that even when your unformed parts were in the, uh, in the mysterious depths of the earth, you know, Adam just means earth, right? So when God took Adam from the earth and formed him and breathed into him the breath of life, even before all of that, God knew every one of your days before they were even lived. He knew every page of the book that is your life. And so as David thinks about this, as he ponders this, eventually he comes to the point of surrender. He gives over to this God. 
Such that by the end of the passage, he says this. It's in the active uh, form. He says, God, search me. Whereas before, it's you have searched me. He started to feel uncomfortable. Now he says, okay, okay, God, search me and know me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He gives them all over. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you want to see God in your life, yes, there are things that you can do. You can meditate upon holiness and upon beauty. You can engage in ritual. But ultimately, to see God is an act of surrender. Giving over. That's the invitation today. To surrender to the God who made you, who loves you, who's redeemed you, who is leading you in the way everlasting. Surrender. You'll see Him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.